0: Turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter number 4. 1 John chapter number 4. I want to confess to you this morning I feel inadequate to the text. Now, we probably ought to rightly always say that, uh, because who, who is ever worthy to preach the Word of God? But, uh, there are certain texts that, uh, that I, I feel as though as I approach unto them, uh, maybe I feel somewhat equipped. But I'll be hon- I'll be honest with you, I feel inadequate for this text this morning. Uh, but I want to do my best to honor the Lord this morning. I trust to your grace and patience with me. 1 John chapter number 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 7. We'll read down to verse number 19 of the chapter. Uh, the Word of God says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, Never every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, Because He hath given us of His Spirit, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in Him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is... So are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you'd bless your word this morning. Lord, I know that if the request was to bless me, that, Father, I might not stand in any place of blessing. Lord, as I ask you to bless your people this morning, or although undoubtedly they stand uh, far more uh, moral and righteous than I, Lord, I know that even they are not worthy of uh, your blessing through their own merit this morning. But Father, we do ask you to bless that which most assuredly is blessable, and that is your perfect, inerrant holy word, that you would bless the preaching of it, Lord, that your spirit would Uh, have liberty to wield his sword, the sword of the Word of God, in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, that everything that is done today would bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I don't know the heart of any person in this room, save my own. And if I'm to be real honest, Lord, there's probably uh, deep, dark recesses in my heart that I don't even really know, that only You know. But Lord, I know that this morning, every one of us, our heart is laid bare before You. Lord, You know if we're saved. You know if we're right with You. You know if we're humble. You know if we're uh, haughty. Lord, You know if we have sin in our lives. You know if we're struggling. And Lord, it is in the knowledge of Your knowledge that we ask You to minister to each heart's need. And Lord, to meet that need through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be sure to give You and Him glory uh, for that work that is done. Father, we love You and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I have always heard in my life, and I would venture that you've probably heard something similar. I've often heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13 referred to as the love chapter. I've preached a number of, of weddings. That's one of the things I do is I preach wedding. I figure if they don't want me to do the wedding bad enough let me preach a little bit, we can just part ways. Amen? So I, I usually preach a little bit, and that thins out those that are just looking for somebody with a, with a suit and a tie and uh, I've preached on First Corinthians chapter thirteen. I've preached on it at weddings, and I've preached on it in the house of God. I I don't know, but what I may have preached on it at a funeral before. Uh, certainly, you could from that chapter. And we have often heard it called the, the love chapter. Now, you and I both know, if we're if we're students of the Bible, we know that it's not actually the word love that appears there, but rather the word charity, which denotes a a distinctly divine quality. Of love. But uh, the word love is actually not found anywhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, the word charity is. But even if we consider the word charity, even if we want to grant the synonymity of those two words, and I don't, I think there's a distinction. But even if we wanted to say that charity is love and love is charity, you know that the word charity only appears nine times in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, I'll admit to you that chapter is all about charity, but I began to think as I read through the Word of God, and there was a word as I read through our text this morning that just kept pounding away. It was like the pealing, the sound of a bell, just over and over and over and over again. We hear the word love in the text that we read. And so I did a little bit of, of, of studying, a little bit of searching, and I found that, you know, the word charity is found nine times in First Corinthians 13. The word love is not found anywhere. However, I believe that title of, of the love chapter, it should probably go to 1 John chapter 4. You know, Brother Ken, if you go to the book of 1 John, that the word love or one of its variants, and I'm, by the way, I'm not counting the word beloved, uh, which is used as a title, but just love or loveth or loves or love, something to that effect. Love or one of its variants, it's found 46 times in the book of 1 John. That's a lot of times. Do you know that it's found... 27 of those times in 1 John chapter number 4. And even in our text this morning, I don't know if you heard it, but 22 times we use the word love as we read through the Word of God this morning. And so I think that it would be fair to say that the theme and topic of our text this morning is that of love. However, it is not that of of, uh, relationship love between a husband and a wife. It's not even exclusively or predominantly uh, that of uh, a love that we have towards a friend. It is not primarily even uh, concerning love that we have of the brethren, although that is touched on here. Do you know, and this makes perfect sense to me, Brother Charlie, that if the Bible is going to talk about love, if it's going to show us what love is, if it's going to define what love is before for us, then it is going to point to Calvary to show us what love is. And that is precisely what God does in 1 John chapter number 4. He talks about love and He points to Calvary and He reveals to us some profound truths regarding this idea, this topic of love. I want to take a few moments this morning and we'll give a little bit of an introduction. I want to notice some of the surrounding scriptures. But I want us to notice that not just love is talked about here, but there is a particular type of love that is mentioned. We find it in verse number 12. Uh, The uh, writer says, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. We find it again down in verse number 17, when the Bible says herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. And once again in verse 18, when we're told that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. So I want to take a moment and notice these verses this morning. And I want to preach to you on the topic of perfect love, or love that is made perfect. Can I say this, that the kind of love that God has towards us, it was love that was made perfect through the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. The word perfect that is used here is not necessarily referring to sinlessness, although let me say Jesus was most assuredly sinless. Let me say that His love of us is a pure love. It is a sinless love. But that is not what the word perfect in this context means. Rather, what it means is that it is mature It is the full realization of. It is brought to completion or consummation. In other words, it is what it's supposed to be. And when we look at Calvary, we see love as it's supposed to be. There is a lot that passes for love today that bears no resemblance to what the Bible defines as love. I think words matter. I don't know about you... I think that one of the great battles that is waging in our society today is the battle of words and what they mean. You often hear people use phrases like my truth or your truth, but at the end of the day, you and I know that there is just the truth and we can try to redefine and redetermine the meanings of words, but I think if we run, it, you know, a word is just used to express truth, Brother Charlie. That's what it's for. A word is a vehicle to communicate an idea from this, this brain to that brain. That's what it's there for. No matter what I call it, it doesn't change the truth of it. So words, if they're rightly used, they ought to be rightly defined. And that's what we find God does in First John chapter 4. I think we get done preaching day. we ought to know what love is. We ought to know what the love of God is. We ought to know what the love of God has done in this world and in your life and in my life and then by extension what the love of God can do in the lives of others through our life and the love that we have experienced. Notice a few things with me by way of introduction. I didn't want to just skip over these verses. They're important. Look at verse number 7. The Word of God says, Beloved. And that was John's sort of a, a key word. He would often call him beloved. Now you might say, why did he call everybody beloved? Well, because he was beloved. And he wanted to love others the way that God had loved him. You remember in the book of John, he is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He could have called himself anything. He could have called himself John the Awesome. If there was a gospel of Toby and it talked about Toby, it would have probably said, and then thus saith Toby the awesome. You know, because I'm holding the pen, right? We know it wasn't John holding the pen, though it was the Holy Ghost holding the pen. And John does not identify himself as John the great or John the awesome or John the best. Uh, He uh, instead says the disciple whom Jesus loved. To John, even his name didn't matter. All that mattered was that Jesus loved him. Can I say this? When we realize that the Lord loves us, our name don't mean much. But just the fact that He loves us is enough. And so John was uh, called John the Beloved. And he called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And now he views others through that same prism. Can I say, you get a real good grasp of the love of God, you'll see people the way that God sees people. Part of our problem in society today is we don't see people the way that God sees them. Uh, We are being constantly jostled around and bullied around into seeing people in a number of various different classifications and groups. But can I say the best thing for you and I as Bible believers would be to view people the way God views them. How does God view people? Well, God views people in about a few different ways. He views the world in terms of Jew, Gentile, and the church of the living God. He views the world in terms of lost sinners and saints that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And He views the world as a vast swath and multitude of people for whom Christ died. I think that's how we as Bible believers ought to view the world. And so John began to view the world the way that God viewed the world. We ought to view the world the way that God views the world. We ought not let him try to bust us up into a bunch of different little groups and then give us pitchforks to chase after each other. We just ought to look at people the way that God looks at them, that this is a broken world in need of Jesus Christ. I believe I can get an amen on that. He called them beloved. He said, beloved... Let us love one another. Now, that's real easy to say. It's harder to do. Let us love one another. Here's why. He says, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Here we find the divinity of love. Or I might say it this way, but Jim, we find love endorsed. In other words, John says this, that love, biblical love, love in the way that God defines it, is a divine quality. We cannot claim to be a child of God and not love one another. It's disconsonant. It is uh, not in keeping with the God that we claim to serve. Now, how, Brother King, could we say that we love the Lord and not love what He loves? You know, when you love someone, you love the things that they love. Now, I'm not saying you always endorse things if they're wrong, but I'm saying if what they if what they uh, love is right, then you tend to love. There are things that I care about that I didn't care about before. I before there are certain people in my life. My little boy can come up to me and he'll tell me stories about dragons and dinosaurs, and he'll tell me stories about uh, about horses and tigers, and he'll tell me story about sword battles and all kinds of things. And I'll be honest with you, I don't care about any of that. But when he's telling me, I do care about it. I love Him and I love the things that He loves. I'm interested in the things that He's interested in. How can we say we love the Lord and not love those whom God loves? That just don't make sense. Uh, listen, half you all have to watch TV in separate rooms because you can't get along with each other. Somebody say amen to that. You ought to learn to love the things each other loves. Uh, John says that love is a divine It is a divine quality to love things. By the way, let me say this. There is a sense in which hate can be a divine quality when we're hating uh, sin and what it does in the lives of others. But let me say, I think we live in a world that's got a pretty good handle on this thing of hate. I mean, I'm not saying there ain't things we need to work on. (laughs) I'm just saying being mad probably ain't one of them. We seem to have gotten that under control. I think most of us, if, if getting annoyed was an Olympic sport, we'd be gold medalists. Somebody say amen to that. And so I think that we ought to recognize that this thing of loving one another, it is a divine thing. And then verse number 8, he he gets a little stronger. He says, "...he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love." Now remember what we're doing this morning. We're letting God give us definitions. Here's what uh, the politicians try to do. They try to take God's words and plug in their own definitions, Brother Charlie. They try to call love what they want it to be and then declare that if you don't endorse that, then you don't know God. But you see, that's a backwards way of thinking. Instead, what we ought to do is say, God, I want to know what You believe love is and when You then tell me what that love is, then that word love has force and meaning to it. And it's not an elastic term. But John makes no qualms about it. He says, listen, if you do not love one another, if you do not love the Lord, then you do not know God because God is love. We preached a little while about this a few months ago, going through 1 John, talking about the nature of God. And You can really get in the weeds here. They're good weeds to be in, but I don't want to get in the weeds. But let me just say this, we find here love emphasized. In other words, it's almost like John's saying this. Uh, let me say it a little louder for all of those that can't hear, that love is of God. It is not a recommendation for the Christian character. It is a requirement. It is a requirement. So we find the demand for love. And then notice the display of love. We find love exemplified, verse number 9. Now here's where we're getting to some important things because we got to know what love is. Some people call love one thing, some people call it something else. What does God describe love as? Well, He says this, In this was manifested, that means brought into the light, in this was manifested the love of God towards us. Mankind really did not have a concept of God's love until Christ went to Calvary. That's when broken it was brought into the light and man could see on full display. Paul wrote to the church at Galatia and said that Jesus had been evidently sent forth, crucified among them. They had seen what the love of God was. God says, this is what love looks like. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Now we could stop there and preach for hours, but can I just notice a few things? I don't even have notes about them, but I cannot help. I feel constrained to mention them. But let me say that love, biblical love is a sacrificial love. And this was manifested in the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world. Love will make you give, love will make you sacrifice. Love will make you think of somebody else instead of thinking of yourself. And in fact, I would say this, the very fact that John points to the love of God toward us tells us that love is an action concept. Love is not something that we do passively. You listening? Love is something we do actively in someone's life. Uh, We don't just sit back and hold love in our hearts. We express and manifest that love towards Him. That's what God did for you and I. He manifested. He brought that love into the light. And then let me notice this, that Biblical love is sanctified. Why did He do that? That we might live through Him. Uh, love is not a destructive thing. You listening to me? Here's where we really get to some important distinctions. Love's not a destructive thing. Anything that someone does in the life of another person that produces sin or disobedience to God cannot be biblically called love. This, this is why permissiveness is not love. This is why enabling is not love. Because at the end of the day, if we love that person, we'll do what we believe is best for them in accordance with the Word of God. So love is a sinless thing. You know what would have made... You know, the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is an offense to them that perish. If love was defined by that which is non-offensive, Jesus would have never went to the cross. His very going to the cross was an offensive act to the world. For if the world needs a Savior, then they must be sinners. And they must be helpless. If you don't believe the preaching of the cross of Christ is an offense to them which perish, go out and start handing out tracts. Start sharing the gospel. uh, Start uh, telling and sharing the Word of God with people. You'll find out there's folks who get real offended in a hurry. Is that an act of hate? Well, we're being told today in society it is. We're being told that that is a hate action. uh, That to tell people what God says concerning them and their uh, personal condition and their eternal destiny is hate speech. But that's not true. That's not true. The world can say it. They can pass laws about it. But that's not true. Everybody in your family, everybody in your friends can tell you that that's hate. But it's not hate speech. Why? Because God said that Christ went to the cross of Calvary as an expression of love. And He did so that we might live through Him. And let God be true and every man a liar. I'm just telling you, we've got to define these things biblically. So we find love displayed or love exemplified. And then we find the definition of love here in verse 10. He really breaks it down. He says, herein is love. So he's already said, if you look to Calvary, you'll see what love looks like. But he says, let me just spell it out. Herein is love. Not that we love God. Can I say this? That uh, real love is not predicated upon the response or promise or potential of the person that you love. You listening? It's not, I'll love you if you'll do for me. That's not what the love of God is. It's not how God loved us. The Bible says that for a good man some would uh, peradventure die, but Christ, uh, God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You say, well, we were sinners, but that didn't mean we were, you know, enemies of God. No, it does. Down about two verses later, he says, if when we were the enemies of God, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. We were the enemies of God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We were the enemy of God and He showed love towards us. Not that we loved God and we earned God's love, but rather that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love deals, listen now, love deals with the sin problem. Love deals with the brokenness of a human being. Uh, It is not, listen, to, to excuse a person's brokenness is not love. To enable a person's brokenness is not love. To encourage a person's brokenness is not love. Only to deal with that brokenness, to redeem them and rescue them from that brokenness. That is what love is. We live in a world today where love is equated with the enabling and endorsing of a person's sin. That if you don't clap for them in their unrighteousness, you must hate them. But that's not what God says. I believe God's right, even if it means everyone else is wrong. So the definition of love is it is sacrificial. It is, it is selfless. It is uh, saving. But then notice the debt of love, verse 11. We ain't, even, we ain't preaching yet, don't worry. Verse 11 says, Beloved, he used that word again. You know why he's doing that? He's reminding them that they're loved by God. Because everything that the Christian life is birthed out of and grows out of grows out of the love of God toward us in our lives. I'm going to go ahead and give you away the punchline before we get there, alright? I'm going to give you the answer to the question before it's even asked. The love of God being perfected in us means that the love that God has towards us was realized by Christ dying on the cross of Calvary and our receiving of that death, our partaking in that death, but a product of the realization of that love is for us to then extend that love towards other people. You listen this morning, he says, Beloved, you know why? He wants to remind you that God loves you. Uh, not so that you can sit and have a warm feeling inside. Now let me say, I enjoy the love of God. I enjoy enjoying the love of God. I, I enjoy the blessing it is to think of how God loves me. But that's not the only product and purpose of the love of God in our lives. Love ought to be the motivator for the way that we live our lives. Uh, the love of God, hey, if God so loved us, Brother Fred, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We see the debt of love. Uh, you know that every single one of us, because we were loved when we were unlovable and unlovely, we now have a debt to pay towards those around us that we extend and express that love towards them. We might say it this way, love expected. You know what love is? Love is trying to rescue someone from the greatest peril in their life. And when a person's lost, the greatest peril in their life is not that they grow up to be poor, that they grow up to be unhappy, or that they uh, grow up to be hated or unpopular. The greatest peril in their life is that they grow up and die in their sins and leave this world and go to a devil's hell. That is the greatest danger that they uh, experience. And as such, you know what ought to be our great and grand motivation? To try to rescue them from that danger. That's how we repay that debt of love. Now, we can never fully repay that debt, and that's why we just keep on loving folks. We never really fully repay it. We don't have the means or the wherewithal to repay it. But you know, we are compelled to try. That's why Paul said, the love of Christ constraineth us. You know what it means to constrain? It means to grab hold of somebody and not let them go. You want to know what constraint is? Wait until some of these boys are running around being wild and rowdy in here and wrestling and everything. And every once in a while, you'll hear one of them howl- holler. They howler out. They don't even holler. They howler. It's half holler and half howler. They have that, woo. And one of them's grabbed hold of them and won't let them go. They're constraining them. Paul says, that's what the love of God's done to me. It's grabbed hold of me and won't let me go because I have a debt for the kin that I have to pay. So we have the love of God laid out But what about this perfect love that is talked about? Uh, The Lord points backwards to the love of Christ on Calvary and says that is what perfect love looks like. And I want you to notice three simple thoughts with me this morning in accordance with the usage of that term perfect. And And then we'll go to the house. But notice them with me. Look with me at verse number 12. The Bible says, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now, here's what I think John's saying. I told you I feel a little inadequate to this text. I'm going to tell you what I think that he's saying. Are you with me this morning? I think what he's saying is this. Nobody can see God, but they can see God in you. No man has seen God at any time, yet how does God work actively in this world? And we know that He does indeed work actively in this world. How is God present in this world? No man has seen God at any time, but they can see the love of God at work in your life and in my life. Paul said that the love of Christ was shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. In other words, they can see what the love of God has done in us. I'm going to call this, you listen, the evidence. A perfect love. And you know, he gives us three examples. Now, notice distinctly what he says here. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. Now, what we're going to do is reverse engineer that. Well, Charlie, here's my question then. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. But everybody probably believes they are loving towards one another. So here is the greater question. How do we know if God dwells in us? Uh, There's a million religions out there today. How do we know, Brother Fred, that God dwells in us as Bible believers? And how do we know as Christians that have received the Lord, how can we know that God dwells in us and therein the love of God dwells in us? Well, he gives us three ways to know. Look down with me at verse 15. He says this, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Let me say the first way that we know that we dwell in the love of God is the word of salvation in our hearts and upon our lips. Now, I think John uh, had heard this phrase before. I don't think it's the first time, but again, he had ever thought about this, whosoever shall confess. In fact, Brother Paul talked about it and said it in this way, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, The the Bible makes clear that that with the heart man uh, believeth unto, uh, unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So in other words, how do we know that we have partaken in this perfect love? Well, very simply, we have done what God has asked of us by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving Him and the love that He expressed towards us, receiving Him as our Savior. This is something that uh, I experienced personally in my life, and I've shared this before with you, but I was saved at a young age, I was 10 years old, and uh, my wife was 6 when she was saved, but she's a lot smarter than me, amen? But you know what that means, you ought to expect more out of her. She's 4 years older than me. Uh, Not biologically, just spiritually. And uh, But I saved when I was 10 years old. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up around the Word of God and I had heard it my whole life. I was so inundated with the Word of God, so saturated with the truth of it, that when I got saved, no one was there to lead me to the Lord. I, I knew the Gospel. I could have, as a lost child, probably led somebody else to the Lord. I might have. I don't know if I did. I don't remember it. Because it's the Gospel, you understand, is powerful to save, not the individual. But I knew the gospel. I knew it clearly. I knew it well. I understood it. I had probably understood it for a while. But in that moment, as a 10-year-old boy on December 1st, 1997, God made me aware of my lost condition. And it's not that I didn't know the answers. If you had said, do you believe that, you know, if a person dies without Jesus, they go to hell? I would have said, yes, I believe that. If you had said, do you believe a person, everybody has to be saved? Nobody's born saved. You have to be saved. I would have said, yes, I know that. I understood all that. But in that moment, it became real to me. And I knew that it wasn't just whosoever. It was Toby Weber. It was me. I was lost. And that if I died, I'd die and go to hell. And so I knelt down in my bedroom and asked the Lord to forgive me and save me. And He did. I said He did. Well, glory, He did. Some of y'all looking at me like you're not sure. I ain't so sure about you either. But... uh he saved me, but I, like, like a lot of people that grew up in a Christian home, I then, afterwards, I struggled with assurance of my salvation, because I'll be honest with mean I wasn't like a bad kid, I ain't saying I was the best kid, but it, you know, there wasn't that dramatic change that you see in people's lives, because guess what? I was 10. I, 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 I was, I was in church so often, I already knew the gospel before I was even, I mean, I just, I knew all of that. And so when I was about, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years old, I started to really struggle with assurance of my salvation. And um, I, you know, for a couple of years I struggled with it, and I, I don't know, I must ask God to save me a hundred million times. And I remember, and some of y'all have heard this before, I know, but I remember laying in my bed one night when I was 15 years old, and I was so frustrated, because I just wanted to, I just wanted to know. You know what I mean? I just wanted to know. I'd hear all these people talking about you'll know. But I didn't feel like I knew. And I wanted to know! And so I remember laying in bed, and, and just in anger, in frustration, in, in fatigue, I, I cried out to the Lord. I've been talking to Him and and, I, and with tears in my eyes, I cried out and I said, Lord, I've done everything You've asked me to do. I've prayed the prayer. I've tried to believe on You. I know everything I'm supposed to I've done everything You've asked me to do. So if I die and go to hell, it's Your fault, not mine. Because I've done everything that You've asked. And I don't know if I meant that in a right spirit or not, but God seemed to honor it because it was like a light bulb went off in my mind. And I remember I literally said it verbally, out loud, I said it over to myself. I said, I have done everything He's asked me to do. So if I die and go to hell, it's His fault and not mine. And what I realized in that moment was this. It it has never been us that does the saving. It's God that does the saving. And all we're doing is responding in obedience to the gospel. The gospel says, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved." And I had done that. I had done what God asked me. I hadn't earned it. I hadn't worked for it. I don't think I don't think ceasing to depend upon yourself can be called work or action. I hadn't earned it, but I had done what God asked of me. I had believed upon Him, and in that moment, it became so crystallized in my mind that this thing of salvation is not about us, quote unquote, really getting it, whatever that means. This thing of salvation is simply about, in simple faith, responding in obedience to what God has said concerning us, concerning His Son, and trusting in the Lord to do what He promised He would do. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him. I had done that sincerely in my heart. And so I knew with confidence, not because I keep my promises, but because God always keeps His, that He had saved me, and would continue to keep me by His grace and by His power. So the word of salvation is one of those. If you've never uh, if you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have never uh, repented of your sin and asked Him to forgive you and save you, and whatever words your heart may utter them, if you've never received Him and trusted Him, then you have no reason to believe that you've partaken in that perfect love. But if you have, you have every reason to believe that you've partaken in that perfect love. And then look at verse 16. He says this, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. He that dwelleth in in love dwelleth in God and God in Him. So not only the word of salvation, but the witness of His sacrifice tells us that we have partaken in that perfect love. I love the way John says it. We believe the love that God hath to us. We just believe that God, when He sent His Son to Calvary, He was doing it because He loved us because He was interested in us, because He had a plan for our life. Don't you realize when Jesus went to Calvary, He went for you? Just as much as He went for whoever you think the best Christian is, (laughs) He went for you. And what we are trusting to is that that expression of love was genuine. It was sincere that He did that, because He does indeed love us. That if He loves us and we come unto Him, He will in no wise cast us out. It's one of the things I've always struggled with about this whole thing of people saying you can lose your salvation. There's a lot of things I've always thought was was a little wacky about that. I, I, the, for, for instance, I, I wasn't the one that got my salvation, Brother Ken. How can I lose it if I'm not the one that got it? I didn't earn it, so I can't lose it, right? But then it's never made sense to me that God would go to so much trouble to save you and I, and then allow and, and not foresee that we're still going to sin. I mean, He's not much of a God if He didn't plan for that. I'm nobody, but I can tell you people sin. I don't care who they are. Every one of them does. And if they say they don't, they've just sinned by lying. Every one of us does. You think God didn't take into account that? And what a weak salvation it would be if it only lasted for a few moments. If it only lasted for a day or two. I don't know how long a person could go without sinning. I can't seem to go ten minutes, but... I I, I don't know how long they can go, but what a weak salvation, Brother Ken, it would be if it could not go any longer. You say, preacher, how do you know you've partaken in that perfect love? Because I'm trusting that when He says He died for me, He died for me because He loves me. And I'm trusting He wouldn't throw me away. You know why? Because why would He go to so much trouble to redeem somebody as worthless as me only to allow me to fall off the edge into hell the moment that I do something wrong? So I see the witness of His sacrifice. But then I see another thing. Back up to verse 13. John says, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, we're handling this a little bit out of order. And and the reason for that is because I think John views the work of the Spirit like a bookend in in a Christian's life. He mentions it first. You know why? Because a person do not even realize they're a lost sinner except the Holy Ghost tells them. That's the reason I knew on that day in December. Even though I'd known the facts my whole life, it didn't matter to me, it wasn't important to me, until God made me fully realize the meaningfulness of it, the reality of it. And it wasn't my little pea brain that came up with that. It was the Spirit of God had impressed upon me the importance and truth of that. Reality. So, I believe John kind of used the Spirit as as a bookend in people's lives. Certainly, we wouldn't know we're lost if the Spirit of God didn't take the Word of God and make it real to us. But let me say that the work of the Spirit of God doesn't begin and end just there. But that Spirit of God, if we receive Christ as our Savior, He takes up residence in our heart. And He lives in our life. And He convicts us and He comforts us and He guides us and He instructs us. And He becomes our ever-present companion. It is God with us. He is always present in the life of the believer. And John says, you know, a person knows that God dwells in them because God dwells in them. I don't know how to say it any more simple. He says, a person knows that God dwells in them because the Spirit of God resides within them. And when they sin, He convicts them. And when when uh, the truth of the word of God is set forth, it bears witness. They know they can affirm that truth as being reality. They're excited and enthusiastic uh, about the prospect of heaven and the reality of Calvary and what God has done for them. The Spirit of God lives in them. What does it produce? Well, I notice a couple of things. One, I, this is going to seem obvious, but there is a new spirit in our life. We are not driven by the things we were driven by before. We're not motivated by the things that we were motivated by before. Now, let me tell you something. My flesh enjoys sin as much today as it ever has. My flesh, me and Brother Ken agree about that. My flesh enjoys sin as much as ever it has. But now there's a new man that lives within me, and the Spirit of God bears witness when I do wrong that I am indeed doing wrong. That's not to say I don't sometimes still choose to do wrong. Boy, I, I, I do. I'm ashamed to say it, but sometimes I choose to do wrong. But I can't do it without God letting me know that I'm doing wrong. There's a new spirit within me. There's a new appetite within me. Things I wouldn't otherwise care about. We are always baffled that the world does not care for Bible Christianity. Isn't that funny? We are always baffled that the lost world is not interested in Bible Christianity. Well, why would they? They're spiritually dead. Of course they don't care. You didn't care until you got saved. wasn't of any interest. Now, you might have grown up in it, and you might have been around it, but it didn't really mean nothing to you until you got born again and got saved. Then you saw it, man. Then you got it. You saw what it was all about. You, you understood these saints getting happy in the Lord. You understood the rejoicing. You understood the tears at the altar because it was Real. There's a new spirit within us, new appetite, new motivation within us. But then I notice there's a new song. He said, "We've seen and do testify that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world." Now, again, let, let me say, I, I think that He is leading into that statement about confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. But can I just lay this emphasis here? You know, one of the ways that a that a person you know that they got born again, you know that they got saved, is because they they desire truth. You listening? They desire truth and they affirm the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I'm careful how I say that because not everybody that's saved believes right about everything. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. I get to heaven to find out there's things that I had perspectives on that I was just wrong about. (gasps) I know. I ain't saying it's true. I'm just saying it's possible. I'm not even saying it's plausible. But affirming the truth and reality of the person of Jesus Christ and who He is, that's a prerequisite. Uh, there, listen, there's a lot of people south of the border named Jesus and can't none of them get you to heaven. There's people all the world uh, by the name of Joshua, which is the, the Hebrew iteration of the word Jesus that cannot get you to heaven. To believe that Jesus is who God says He is, is part of believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it then becomes the theme of our life. We're given a new song. Notice that he says that actively, presently. We have seen and do testify. Not we did testify. Not we affirmed it once in the past. But he says now this is what we do. We testify of the reality of Jesus Christ. Gave us a new song. Gave us a new purpose. Gave us a a new theme in life. You know one of the things that grieves me more than anything is to see Christians trade their high and glorious song for lower tunes and paltry melodies. I'm not saying we shouldn't have opinions on things that go on in the world. But man, listen, shame on us if our be-all end-all is, is, is a favorite sports team or a political affiliation or a favorite TV program. What low, low songs that is for a Christian to be singing. You know what our song ought to be? Our song ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ, His sacrifice on Calvary, His effectual, powerful work in our lives and what He can do in the lives of others. That's what we ought to be living for. How do you know? So we see the evidence of perfect love. But then notice the confidence of perfect love. So the evidence that a person has experienced the love of God is the word of salvation. They've received the Lord as their Savior, the witness of His sacrifice. They know that because God loves them and God will have responded affirmatively uh, to His promise towards them. And then the evidence in their life, the work of the Spirit in their life, that the Spirit of God indwells them. They're given a new spirit and a new song. God has changed them. It's not to say they'll never do anything wrong. It's not to say that they won't try to go back to that old life. Can I say a word about that, we got. It's only like nine o'clock in the morning, so we got plenty of time. Uh, can I say something about that verse? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things will become new. Now, that's to suggest this: that the old way of living is gone, and that there is a new way of living that we are experiencing. You know what that means? We can still try to go back book of James talks about people trying to return like a dog to its vomit or like a, a pig to its wallowing. We can try to go back to it. But you know what we'll find? We'll find it's not the same as it was before. It's passed away. It's still there. And there's lots of people. Hey, listen, I mean, the, the, the Hebrew children spent all their time with an eye towards Egypt. And that's why they died in the wilderness. But can I just be honest? There wasn't no going back to Egypt. They could have tried to go back to Egypt. You know, they would have found a big old Red Sea in their way, but they could have tried to go back to Egypt. But you know what they would have found? They would have got back there and the Pharaoh that they knew was dead. The people, the army that they knew was dead. (laughs) Moses wasn't back there anymore. God wasn't, wasn't protecting them anymore there. They could try to go back, but they would have found it different. A person can get saved and they can try to go back and live that old life. Sadly, a lot of people do. But you know what they find? They find there's no joy in it. They use, And I'm using that word joy loosely. I know joy is only in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. But but I'm saying they find no, no contentment in it. They find no happiness in it. They find no pleasure in it like they once did. When they were lost, they could live in sin and just uh, didn't even know how they were destroying their lives. But now they know... That old life has passed away. That doesn't mean they don't try to go back to it sometimes. A lot of people do. Uh, Peter said it's possible for a man to be so backslid that he forgets that he was washed from his old sins. Now, I don't know about you, but when a person is born again, they're washed from their sins. I would say when a person is washed from their sins, they are born again. So Peter is talking about a saved person when he says that. And he's saying they can go back and they can be so blinded that they forget what God has done in their life they can try to go back. Uh, by the way, that's that's what a reprobate is. It's someone that has known the truth and has then tried to go back on that truth. It doesn't mean that the promises of God are not still true in their life, but it does mean that old life that they used to live, they won't find it to be like what the, it used to be. You know why? Because all things are become new. Uh, here's the reason I say that. Some folks have the idea that a person can't backslide. That if a person backslides, is never saved in the first place. Peter's got a problem with that. I'm not, I'm not saying me, you know, I don't care what you believe. I'm just saying Peter has a problem with that. Peter, as a certified backslider, has a problem with that. I'm saying you can, of course you can. Of course you can go back, and of course God's promises remain true, but you'll find that old life that you try to go back to, it ain't what it used to be. And there's some folks have this idea that when God saves us, He just hands us a ticket to heaven, and that's the only, that's the only interaction He has with our life. No, friend, all things are become new. He does change our lives. So we see the evidence. That was where we were at, right? The evidence of perfect love. But then notice the confidence of it. And I'll, I'll hasten on. Verse 17, we find this phrase again. He says, herein is love made perfect. And here's why. Here's what When he says herein, he's saying this is why. This is why our love is made perfect. Or this is the product of our love being made perfect. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is so are we in this world now again let me remind you it's not talking about our love towards him but it's talking about his love toward us and our partaking in that love and he says that that love towards us our love is made perfect and here's why that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. You know what kind of confidence that being a part of that perfect love gives you? It gives you, number one, confidence to stand in the examination day. How could we ever stand before a thrice holy God, Charlie? How could we ever? I mean, I don't even know how to get out of it, but I'd sure try to get out of it if I could. What a terrifying thought. But do you know that we don't have to view that day Uh, with fear in our hearts. Now, I understand what Paul said about the terror of the Lord. And I understand there is a sense in which we should be motivated to be circumspect in regards to that day. We're going to have to answer for the way that we live. But you know, as we come and approach to the judgment seat of Christ as believers, that's where believers go. They're present at the great white throne judgment. They're not being judged there. Lost people are being judged at the great white throne judgment. But for you and I as believers, we're going to the judgment seat of Christ. As we approach that day, the only way we could ever have boldness is to know that the love of God that He gave His only begotten Son toward us has been fully realized in the relationship that Christ has provided for us. You say, preacher, how can we stand on that day? I mean, we make mistakes, we sin, we are frail. That's true. And Calvary covers it all. Calvary covers it all. Can I tell you something? I'm not scared one iota of falling off into hell. Not because I'm anybody. I'm nobody. Not because I don't deserve it. If anybody deserves it, Brother Larry, I deserve it. But because Christ does not deserve it. And He took my place at Calvary so that I could take His place in heaven. Gives us boldness to stand in the examination day. And then there's a second phrase. He says, because as He is, so are we in this world. He doesn't say as He was so are we, he says, as he is. He doesn't say, as he is, so were we. He says, as he is, so are we in this world. In other words, the way he is now is how we are in this world. It's almost as if to say this, that as we face walking through this world, we face it as though we are Jesus Christ. And, of course, that's in perfect harmony with Scripture. Uh, The Bible teaches us that the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. The Bible teaches us that it is the faith of Christ that lives through us and in us in Philippians chapter number 3, that it's not our own righteousness, but His righteousness and His faith that is manifest in us. So you know what it tells me? being a part of this perfect love of Christ on Calvary. It gives me boldness to stand in the examination day when I stand to be reckoned and when I stand to be assessed and judged. I know I stand whole in the perfect, loving righteousness of Christ. But it also gives me boldness to stand in the evil day that we live in. Because I know that even though I may not be up to the task, I have a God in heaven that loves me, that's interested in me, that cares about me, that loves me like I'm His own Son because now I am. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, John said just a chapter earlier. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. He knows that. He recognizes, I mean listen, how sad it would be if this is how we had to spend eternity in heaven. I, let me just say I would be, I, I would be, I would be tore up to no end if I was still this fat in heaven. I, I don't, I can't give you chapter and verse, but it's just a, it's just a feeling I have. I'm gonna be mad. I don't know who I'm gonna fuss at. Certainly, I ain't going to fuss at the Lord. I don't even deserve to be there. But if I get to heaven and I'm this fat, somebody is going to hear about it. Of course, we're not what we're going to be. Beloved, now we're we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know. We know, Brother Charlie. Not we guess or wonder or speculate or surmise. We know that when He shall appear. So He's coming back. When He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. In other words, I know I'm not everything that I need to be, but God already says I'm His Son, I'm His Child, and He already deals with me that way. Uh, to as many as received Him, John said, John chapter number 1, to as many as received Him, received Jesus, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. I'm already a child of God. I, I can face this world, and this is a hard world to face, and it's getting harder day by day. I can face this world, though, knowing that I'm a child of God, And that the way that God helped His own Son when He walked through this world is the way that God will help me. So I find in this passage the confidence of perfect love. And then finally, and I'll be done, I want you to notice the response of perfect love. Look down at verse number 18. He then says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. Can I give you a very simple, very, I think, relatable example of what this is talking about? You know, some people would have you to believe that there are two ideas of fear in the Bible, that there's godly reverential fear, and then there's fear in the sense of torment. Now, it is true that there are two concepts of fear, but you know the words are the same. The words are the same. It's not like there's a word for this kind of fear and a word for that kind of fear. But again, there's just one word for fear, and it scoops up both ideas, right? And if you grew up with a a family that has loved you and with a mom and daddy that that loved you in the right way, you understand completely how both of these concepts can live in the same word. Because I grew up fearing my parents. And it was a reverential fear. It was a fear that was tempered by knowing they love me and want what's best for me. But there was torment in it. If I did something wrong, I was scared. And I should have been. Can I say that again? I don't know. They may, I, I don't know. They're gonna throw me in jail for something at some point. Might as well be this. Your child should be scared of you. Now, that doesn't mean they should run and hide when you come home. It doesn't mean that they should be scared to talk to you and, and relate to you and commute, but they should fear your ire. Your, your discipline of them should mean something, and it should be meaningful, And that's the way that righteousness is produced in us because the Bible says that no chastening for the present time seems to be joyous but grievous, but afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. You want to hear a home that's just tore up? I'm, I'm talking about a drywall to stud. Look at a home where there's no discipline. It's all screaming and fussing and fighting and chaos all the time. But you see, when I was growing up, Daddy knew how to get a quiet home. And and he did that through discipline. I feared him, but I loved him. Those two concepts can live with each other. But you know, it is a mark of immaturity for fear to be the predominant factor in governing your relationship with someone that is above you or someone that has authority over you. As that relationship matures, it ought to be that love at some point casts out perfect fear. Now, let me say... I don't know if I could whoop my daddy today. Maybe. I don't know. Y'all want to find out? No, I'm... <laughs> I, I don't i do not know if I could. He's got a year or two on him now. But he fights dirty. So, I don't know. Maybe I could. Maybe I couldn't. You know, it feels funny to even talk about it because I don't ever even think about that. Because that's got nothing to do with my relationship with him. I, I would never hurt him and I know he'd never hurt me. And I don't, I try to do things that please him. I hope I do, and I hope I please him with the way that I live. But not because I'm afraid of him, but because I love him. That's how that relationship has matured. Can I give a point? Just, I don't know. I don't know if anybody, maybe nobody needs to hear this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. You kinda have a choice when you're raising your kids. You can be friends now and enemies later. Or you can be a parent now and friends later. That's your choice. I'm not saying you need to be an enemy right now. I'm saying you can be you can be friends now and enemies later, or a parent now and friends later. Because in the in the immaturity of that relationship, there will be a a commingling of fear and of love. But as that relationship matures, it becomes about love and not about fear. That's what he's communicating. You know, he's really he's saying about three different things here. One, he is showing us. That love, the love that we show towards God is the motivation of our relationship. You know why love is perfected in, in, in the life of the believer when they come to know Christ as their Savior? Because now their relationship with God is not motivated or based out of fear. They're not serving God because they're afraid He's going to drop hailstones from heaven. They're not serving God because they're afraid He's going to kick them off uh, over the, the, the cliffs of hell. But they're serving God because of the great love that He's shown towards us and because we love Him too. We love Him, John says, because He first loved us. So love becomes the motivation of our relationship with Him. I'll tell you this, if your idea of serving God is I better behave or God's going to kick me in the head, you've got a wrong concept of God. Now I'm not saying God don't chasten us. Better believe, He does indeed chasten us. But you know, God chooses not to lead us around with bit and bridle, the psalmist said, but instead to lead us around with His eye. In other words, when you know where the eye's looking, you know what the heart's desiring. Just knowing what God desires for our life and doing it because we love Him. Love is the uh, motivation. Of our relationship, but then too, let me say this: love is is the uh, the I want to say it just right. Let me look at it. I don't want to say it just right. I don't want to say it wrong. Love is not only the motivation. Love is the maturing of our relationship. Uh, when we get closer to God, we have a heart and a desire to serve Him more. A perfect love casteth out fear, and He says this: He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now, there's nothing wrong with fearing the Lord. Noah was moved with fear. Fear can move you fear moved me when I was a child and I was afraid of the punishment of doing wrong but you know we're living a lot longer after Noah did we got a lot more truth of the word of God and we have a present perfect relationship with God based upon Calvary that Noah did not enjoy and as such I would say this that our love ought to be more mature love is the maturing of our relationship and then finally love is the manifestation of our relationship we love him because he first loved us I'm done with it. I believe God's done with it. But can I say this in closing to you this morning? If you've never experienced the perfect love of Christ on Calvary, if you've never partaken in it, don't let another day pass. Let today be the day. God doesn't hate you. God loves you. If you want to know if God loves you or not, look at Calvary. That's the manifestation of the love of God towards us. And can I say this to those of us that know the Lord as our Savior? Thank God that God loves us. Somebody say amen to that. Can I say this to you? Hey, listen, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. How dare we repay? How dare we be like that, like that wicked servant that after God had, for, or after his master had forgiven him of his paltry debt, of, or his, of his great debt, Brother Ken, he went and found somebody that owed him a little bit of coin, a little bit of, just a paltry debt, and, and wanted to choke him, wanted to kill him, wanted to throw him. How dare we respond to the love of God? with a coldness towards one another. If we love people, we'll share the gospel with them. If we love them, we'll speak the, the, the truth in love to them. If we love them, we'll be patient and long-suffering with them. If we love them, we'll not give up hope, but we'll keep praying for them. We ought to love one another. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. If God has spoken to your heart, I want you to respond in obedience unto Him this morning. Father, I love You and thank You for this time that You've given us. Thank You for the truth. Of your word, I pray that you would help us this morning to respond in obedience as you've dealt with our hearts. Bless this uh, invitation time, we ask it in Jesus' name, with our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. What about you this morning?